John chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus told the crowd, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Amen, Amen, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Amen. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands firm forever. And this is the good news that we're hearing from John's Gospel, chapter 6 today. Have you ever been asked on a date, and I don't want to see any of my girls raising their hands right now, okay? Have the rest of you ever been asked on a date, and you don't really want to spend time with the person, but you accept the offer just to get the free meal, or to go to that awesome event you've been wanting to go to, or the, the movie that you always wanted to see? Go ahead and admit it. Maybe you've done it. Your heart's not in it. Maybe your stomach is, but your heart's not in it. That's more or less what's going on in John 6. 5,000 men had just been fed, so if you had the women and children, it might have been fifteen to 20,000 people. Just been fed from five loaves of barley and two small fish at the beginning of the chapter, and the people say, we want more food, more of that free food. We could take or leave Jesus. Like, we're here for the free meal. We're here for the rabbi with benefits. We're here for, for the sugar daddy savior. We want the prosperity Jesus. That's what here, we're here for. We love your gifts, God. But we could do without you, the giver. 
Now, I believe that you've come here for a different reason. I, you may not have known that we have a free lunch every Sunday. It's worth coming for. But I imagine you've got something else in your heart, in your mind, a hunger and thirst for something more than just food that perishes as the people gathered around Jesus that day. I, I believe you've got a hunger to know Jesus more today. That's why you're here. Is that right? Is that right? Is that why you drove all that way, Eric, from down in Indiana to be here today? Jesus, if this were a date, if this were a date that we're on, Jesus is not just the one who invites you to come to him, to share a meal with him. He is the meal. Jesus is not just the one who gives the bread. He is the bread of life. And so we're looking at this passage today in two courses. You could say that the two main courses are verses 27 through 36, and then verses 37 through 48. The first course that we'll be served, that we'll be enjoying together, feasting on the bread of life, is, is that the Father gives His Son to us. The Son gives Himself to us. There's a giving, there's a gift, there's an invitation, there's an offer. The Father gives His Son to the world for the life of the world. The Son gives His own life so that the world might have life through Him. That's the first course. And the second course we'll see in verses 37 through 48 is that the Father gives us to the Son. The Father takes the people that Jesus has redeemed and He gives us to the Son. This is a promise. This is an invincible, secure promise that we are to believe. So let's look at the first, that the Father is giving the Son to us. The Son is giving Himself to us, this invitation that's open to all who would believe. In verse 27, Jesus tells the crowd, don't work for the food that perishes. You know, you look on canned goods, there's an expiration date. I don't know why they put it on there. Probably just to make more money, because it's a non-perishable food item, but it's saying, this is going to perish if you don't eat it. I still eat those things after the date. Some of you don't. It's a problem. I'm on Jesus' side. You're not, but that's okay. Jesus didn't throw any leftovers away. If you read chapter 6 earlier, he said, gather all the leftovers and don't throw a single piece away. That's me. You might be different, but there's time and there's hope for you. So Jesus says, stop working for perishable items, but instead work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Father has given you through me. And so the, the disciples and the, the Jews who are not yet disciples, and some of them that were called disciples that would soon leave him on this very day during this very discussion, they said to him, what is the work that God requires? What is the work that God requires? And he says, well, God requires you to believe. That's it. Belief. Faith. Verse 28. He says it like this. The Jews ask, literally, what are the works that God wants us to work? And Jesus answers them, the work of God is this, that you believe in Him who He sent. Now, verse 27, Jesus was sent from the Father, and it says the Father put His seal upon Jesus. That's like he's labeling Jesus like you would label a canned good. Do you ever check your labels? Non-GMO, organic, you know, no high fructose corn syrup, this sort of thing? Or do you just have red fingers stained from flaming Hot Cheetos and you just don't care? You just don't care about the labels. You don't care what's in it as long as it tastes good. Well, the Father has labeled Jesus. He has put his seal of approval on him at the baptism of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, the Holy Spirit was Sealing the, the ministry of Jesus, saying, yes, I'm going to equip the Son of God for the work of God. And he said, this is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. 
I've labeled him, I've sealed him, I've identified him, I've set him apart. Now you come to him and you'll have eternal life. He's the one that gives you the food that will last forever. <clears throat> what is the work that God requires? Faith. What is the work that your boss requires? Your boss wants to make money. Your boss wants to look good for his boss or her boss. Your boss wants the customers to be happy. <clears throat> what is the work that your parents require? To make the grade, to make them proud, to don't waste their money. <clears throat> what does my work, wife require of me? What's the work that my wife requires of me? Just simply not to embarrass her. That's a pretty low bar, but that's pretty much what she wants. <clears throat> my professors, what do they want? Late nights, more work out of you than you probably have time to give them. The work that the world demands is different. Your program, what does your program require of you? To outperform all your peers. What does the world say? You must be a good person and do good things, but don't tell us the reason why. Don't tell us what you believe. Just be good. Right? What does social media require of you? To be photogenic, funny, witty, and deep at the same time. The world says if you work hard enough in these ways, you'll be approved, you'll be significant, you'll be happy, you'll be free. Work in these ways and you'll be liberated. Can we look at the next slide on the screen here? Have you seen this gate before entering the concentration camp at Dachau? And how the, the German Nazis brought the Jewish men, women, and children into uh, the gates of these concentration camps like this. And can you read German? <clears throat> you know what this says, right? Work makes free. A false promise, right? If you work hard enough, you will be set free. Well, everyone that entered those gates would eventually die until the liberation happened. Work does not make free in terms of the world's view of it. Only makes you work harder. It's like Pharaoh, the king of Egypt in Exodus chapter 1. We can go to the next slide and put the lights back on. Exodus chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. One sentence and five times we're told that the king of Egypt made the Hebrew slaves work for 400 years and it says he made them work, 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 work. And they got nothing out of it. But death and misery until God redeemed them from that mindset. All other religions say the work that you have to do is this, and they outline a plan. They give you a model. They give you instructions. If you do these five things, you can be a good Muslim. If you do these things, you can be a good Jew. If you do these things, you can be a Hindu. Or <clears throat> if you're an atheist, then you better study your atheism and be smart and know how to talk about God to Christians to make them look bad, right? So you get your outline, you do the right things, <clears throat> and you're good. You're a good atheist. You're a good... Muslim, you're good, whatever, fill in the blank. Not Christianity. Christianity says this. Humble yourself to recognize that you can't do anything to do what God requires of you, but simply receive. Be in a posture of receiving. Be in a posture of need. Be able to say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I can't do it. I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I need some help. That's what a Christian is. A person that recognizes that the work of God is to simply believe, to simply receive, to simply trust, to simply lean on Him instead of your own understanding and strength. It's simply to come to Jesus and eat and drink of Him because you're hungry and thirsty for something that you can't produce and the world has never given you in enough quantity or supply to refresh your soul. How can we as Christians... Do the work that God requires. He tells us in chapter 3, be born again or be born from above. The Spirit of God must 
give you new birth. How can I do that? How can I come to God and say, okay, I'm going to do it now. I'm going to be born again. It's a, it's a work of God. Jesus says to us, be made new in your heart. Have a new heart. Have that old, stony, unbelieving heart taken out and get a new heart of belief and love. How can we do that? That's a, a work of the Spirit of God throughout the prophets. In the Gospels, Jesus tells us over and over, you have to have a new heart. You have to have regeneration or transformation. This is the work of God. If, if I went to the University of Chicago Hospital and had a heart transplant, when I come up off the table and start jogging again, would I say, look at that great work that I did. Look at how great I was to get that heart transplant. No, I would say, wow, the cardio surgeons and the heart donor are amazing people. I just received the gift, and now I'm living still. I'm breathing still. It's a gift of grace. That's what being a Christian is about. That's what the work of God is, to receive, to believe, and to live for God, because all of this comes from Him and through Him. God requires a work of us, true, but the work is faith. And even that is a gift of God, Ephesians 2 tells us. Even that is a work of God. God says, the work I require is faith, and then he works faith in us. He says, it's not about faith versus works, or faith or works. It's not opposed. We are supposed to do good works, but faith is the root of salvation. Faith is the beginning of a relationship with God, and then the fruit of good works flows out of the root of faith. But everything comes from God. God puts the requirement on us, and he provides what he requires. All I simply want you to do is believe it seems easy, but it's not. Because, once again, I can't say to you, believe and you can do it on your own. Because there's this stubbornness in us. Our world resists this idea. Think about it. Isn't the world ready to do good works and be good people, but they have a real hard time saying that the work of God is to believe in the one that God sent, namely Jesus Christ. This is a difficult thing. This is a hard work to believe that Jesus is the Savior and that we can't rest on anything else. We're telling the world, hey, it's easy. Faith is easy. Just believe in Jesus. But thousands and millions of people are not doing that. Billions of people are not doing that. People want to tell us, here's how you can be a good person. Fight for justice. Release the oppressed. Feed the hungry. Advocate for the poor and the victim. These are all good things. These are things we're about here at Living Hope. But then they say, I'm going to tell you how to be a good person, but... Just don't tell me what you believe, or don't tell me what to believe, and don't tell me what to believe in. So they, they tell you what to do, do the good works, but they don't want to tell you what. The only thing God requires is, which is, stop leaning on yourself. Stop looking to the world for all your answers, and start listening to me, trusting me and following me, and receiving the gift that I've given you. So, people say, okay, we can do the good things, and you're calling us to believe in Jesus, so show us a miracle, show us a sign, show us some proof that this Jesus exists and he's real. And if you give us the proof and the evidence, then we may believe. And that's exactly what the Jews said to Jesus. Now remember, everyone's Jewish in this story. But you know, the Jewish leaders and the, the crowd came to Jesus looking for another sign in verse 30. Chapter 6, verse 30. They say like this. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work will you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. The Jews, these, these people in the audience, you have to understand, remember, they just saw the multiplication of the fish and the loaves. They just saw 
maybe 15 to 20,000 people being fed with five small loaves and fish, two small fish. And, and now they're saying, what sign will you do, Jesus? Like this happened yesterday, the miracle. Now they're saying, what sign will you do today that we might believe in you, that you're the one? You know, our father Moses gave us that stuff in the wilderness. Whatchamacallit, that stuff, um, what's it called? The stuff he gave us? Manna. Because it's, it's called, what is it? Like, it's like, what is that stuff? That's what it's called. That's the name of it. You guys thought I didn't know? You're like, oh, manna, Pastor Brad, come on. What's that stuff called is what he gave them. They didn't really know what it was, where it was from. It was from God. It was a heavenly gift. Bread would appear on the ground, this flaky, light, sweet substance, and they would eat it six days a week for 40 years in the wilderness as they wandered around until they got to the promised land. God says in Exodus 16, verse 4, Behold, or a loose translation would be like, Look out below, because I'm about to rain down bread from heaven on you. If you have an umbrella, just turn it upside down. It's a bread basket. You're going to have plenty to eat for 40 years. It's a gift of grace for me to you, God says. The Jewish writers said that the first Redeemer, who was Moses, brought manna. And they believed the second Redeemer, the Messiah, would bring manna too. And so the people are saying, okay, Jesus, if you're from God, then we're expecting manna. Not just a one-day feeding, even though he fed 20,000 people or so. We're expecting a daily provision of unlimited smorgasbord, all-you-can-eat, unlimited lifetime supply of food. That's what would impress us, and that's what would cause us to believe. That's a very high bar, and that's kind of how some people have put the bar for God. If you do these amazing things, I know you've already done some amazing things, but I want more. I want bigger. I want better. I want bolder. I want more miracles, more signs. Then I'll really believe. God already created the world, which is pretty impressive. He already sent his son to die and rise from the dead, which is historically documented. And there is a church that's alive in this world and not crushed and stamped out, which was about to happen in the early days of the movement. And there's all these signs and evidences. And he's, he's calling to us, and we're just saying, I want more. I want more. I want more. So don't get burned out even, either personally or when other people are saying, Okay, Christian, give me more. I know you've shared your time and your, your, your resources with me. I know you've shared the gospel with me, but I just can't believe it yet. Give me more, give me more, give me more. Jesus himself faced that on this day when he had just done this amazing miracle, and they're still saying, we still don't believe, and he's still speaking to them. He's still giving them the offer. I am still the bread of life given for you if you would have me. So be patient with other people. Jesus says, I'm not here for a free food program. I'm not here to, like... Add more money to your link card. Uh, I'm not here, if you're wealthy, to give you a tax break so you can go out and enjoy more fancy things. He's saying, that's not why I came. I will meet your needs, but I'm here to tell you that the manna that Moses gave the Israelites in the desert was not the true food. Now, it wasn't fake food. It was real. It sustained them. But it wasn't the real food that leads to eternal life and that you need and you seek. That was a type of bread. Literally, it was typological. You know, a type is like something that's foreshadowing something better to come. The manna was foreshadowing Jesus, the living bread who would come from heaven. The true bread is a person, not a thing. So he's better in that way. The true bread is not a principle or a philosophy or a law. If you do these things, then you'll be satisfied. If you keep these rules or these commandments, Jesus was a person. He gave himself. It's very very unique and very exclusive and very narrow. This is a, an exclusive relationship. When Jesus invites you on that date to come and join him for dinner, for the, the feast, it's just, there's no one else that can do it like him. 
He doesn't want you to be distracted by anyone else. But at the same time, this very exclusive relationship is a wide open door to the whole world. Because what does Jesus say next? In verse 33, Truly, truly, amen, amen. You know, Jesus puts his amens at the beginning of his sentences, not at the end. Amen, amen, because this is, this is going to happen. I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the Jews. Right? The one who comes down from heaven gives his life just for the Jewish people. Right? Are you reading your Bible with me? On? Did you catch that? Did you read verse 34? Or did you just listen to it? Look at it. Uh, Verse 33. He gives his life to the world. The whole world. All nations. All classes of people. All nations get this offer. So when Moses came, the first Redeemer, he gave manna to the Israelites, the people of God. But then the people of God began expanding in its definition in the new covenant with Jesus. And so now the second Messiah gives bread to the whole world. Anyone can come. Any nation. Anyone who God calls, God draws, God believes, uh, that believes in God. Anyone that God teaches. Anyone who hears the word and believes it. That's what he says later when he says, they all shall be taught by God. They all shall be taught by God. Anyone and everyone who comes. And so the Jews once again say, well, this sounds pretty good. Now they say, give us this bread always. Give us a lifetime supply of this bread. They're still not quite getting it. They're still not quite getting it. Jesus is patient. He keeps telling them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He's extending himself. keeps offering himself. This is the first of the seven I am statements in the Bible. You've heard of those probably if you've been around church for a while. The I am statements of Jesus when he says, Ego eimi in the Greek, I am. Uh, it's an echo of the Hebrew where Yahweh reveals himself as the I am. I am who I am. I am who I am, Jesus says. I will be who I will be. I'm totally different than you. I stand independent of the world. I am God, and there is no other. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. What are the other six? Let's, let's try to rattle them off. I am the bread of life. See if you can do it in order. That's even trickier. I am the bread of life. Then what does he say next? Anybody? What does he say in chapter 8? The blind man, chapter 9. The blind man whose eyes are open. I am the light of the world. I give light to people who are blind. Then in, in chapter 10, we're little sheep and he's the what? I am the good shepherd, right? Good. And then also in chapter 10, I am the gate. Anyone may come in and enter the kingdom through me. And then at the grave of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And then in chapter 14, when Thomas says, where are you going? You said you're leaving us. Where are you going? And how do we know how to get there? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in chapter 15, when he tells us to abide in him if we want to bear fruit, he says, I am the true vine, and you're the branches connected to me. The I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. You want a lifetime, a lifetime supply of bread? You'll still be hungry. You'll go to bed at night. You'll wake up in the morning. Your stomach will still be empty. You'll need more and more and more, and you'll never be satisfied. When you think about life and the hungers people have for significance or for achievement, you'll never be satisfied with what the world gives you. I mean, think about a Super Bowl quarterback who wins the Super Bowl. That's a football game, if those of you 
aren't familiar with American sports, the Super Bowl is the, the big thing. The quarterback wins the Super Bowl, and <clears throat> what does he say the next season? I'm satisfied now. Now I'd be happy to just win half the games, and then we'll all be good. Because I've already achieved the, the pinnacle, the best. Is that what they say? No, they're always trying to do it again and better and bigger. Because we're never satisfied. Why do we keep going back to sin over and over? Because we're never satisfied. We think it's going to do something different the, the 30th time, the 300th time. We think it's going to actually work and not lead to shame and guilt and, and brokenness. Jesus is the living bread. He's the only true bread that will satisfy you. And it's not a testament to Jesus lacking something that you keep going back to the idols of the world and the other things of the world. It's not a testament to Jesus not having what he needs. It's a testament that we don't believe that he's the true bread. The lack is in us. It's not that you've tested Jesus over and over and found him wanting. It's that you've kept testing sin and you found it wanting, but you still don't believe that Jesus alone is the answer to your heart's desires and your soul's cravings. Jesus says, when you eat this bread, the bread of life, he says in verse 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, if you're a Christian, you've come to Jesus, and you found him satisfying, would you say that you've never had a hunger or thirst again in your life for anything? That you always feel completely full and satisfied with Jesus? Like, man, there's not a day that passes where you don't you know, feel totally connected and totally loved and totally awesome and just ready to tackle the world. You ever have days where you feel slightly not full or perhaps a little depressed or maybe like you're, you're worthless or maybe like no one loves you? Have you ever had those thoughts as a Christian? They still come. So why does Jesus say you'll never hunger or thirst again if you eat of me? Well, I think there's three perspectives to look at it. The first is there's the past event of Jesus coming into our life for the first time and he truly does meet our deepest needs. He truly does remove the wrath of God from us and give us forgiveness of our sins and he adopts us into the family. And at the core, deepest root level, at the deepest parts of who you are, you know that you're safe. But then Tuesday comes around. right? It's like, whoa, what happened Tuesday was so different than what happened on Monday when I became a believer. And so now all of a sudden I feel like everybody still is crazy and there's still chaos and crisis and I still have to study and work and I still have to pay the bills and there's, I lost my job. What happened there? Things still fall apart. And so then we begin seeing that now what we have to do is we have to keep coming back to Jesus, like John 15 teaches us, abide in me. Because if you come to Jesus, you have to stay with Jesus. You have to stay in his presence, stay in his word. You have to keep coming back to the bread of life. He is manna. It's a daily provision he gives you. He doesn't just give you a dump truck full and dump it on you all at once. He gives it to you dose by dose, day by day. Mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. He's faithful because of that. He's not faithful to say, well, I'm going to satisfy all your cravings and you'll never... Because then what would you do? You wouldn't seek him anymore. When people say, I'm feeling lonely, well, that's good in some sense because now you want to seek relationship, right? Are you feeling like God is far from you? Well, that's good in a sense because now you want to seek his face again and get back into his word and draw near to him. Jesus says, you'll never hunger or thirst if you keep coming back to me. And then the third perspective that we're looking at, there's the future perspective, that one day, as Revelation tells us, we will have every tear wiped away and, and every hunger and thirst will be filled and satisfied. That's the great consummation when the wedding feast of the Lamb will happen and there truly will be no more spiritual hunger or thirst because God will be all in all and we will see him 
as he is. And we will be made like him, satisfied in him. Amen? Amen. So Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2 is our invitation as we sum up this first course of the meal. Come to the waters. Let all who are thirsty come. Come to the waters. All you who have no money. Some of you have no money, literally. Some of you have no spiritual account anymore to offer and say, well, God, I can do this for you and that for you. We're empty people. We're needy people. We're Christians. That means we admit, I don't have what it takes. I don't have enough. And so we come thirsty and hungry. And he says, come and buy milk and wine and bread without money and without cost. It's free. It's grace. Jesus is the bread of life. Come, you who are hungry, and take hold of him. This is the invitation. It's open to everyone. Come to Jesus, the bread of life. You'll never hunger or thirst again. And then there's the second course, verses 37 through 48. Let's look at those for a few minutes. The Father gives us to the Son. See, he gave us the Son, and the Son gave himself to us. Now God is taking us, his redeemed people, and giving us to the Son as an inheritance, as a treasure, as a gift. It's an invincible promise. It should secure us when we feel shaky. It should stabilize us and root us when we feel uncertain in life. Listen to what this implies, that Jesus says, all the Father gives to me will come. That means you are a gift given from God to his son Jesus. You're a treasure. You're not just property. You're his pleasure, his desire, his inheritance. You will never be taken away from his hand, he says. Verse 37. All the Father gives me will come, and I will never cast them out. All the Father gives me will come. Now here's the perspective. Jesus is waiting for some of these people to come. All the Father gives me will come. It's not happened yet, but it's about to happen for some of them. And for some of us, it would happen thousands of years later. But all the Father gives to me will come. It will happen. It's certain. It's guaranteed. It's like the child waiting on the day after Thanksgiving for the Christmas presents to come. They still have to wait another month, but they know that those are going to be purchased in the closet, maybe under the tree at some point, and they can't wait, but it's going to come. They just have to wait, knowing that the gift will be delivered to them, and it can be open. Or the bride and the bridegroom standing in the church, waiting, as the groom stands up front, waiting at the altar for the beautiful bride to come down the aisle with the wedding bells announcing her presence and her glory. He has to wait, but he can see her. She is coming. She is the gift that has been given to him and he to her, and they will have consummation. They will have a relationship. Jesus says, all the Father gives me will come. I'm waiting, and I know it's going to happen. And he says, and those who come, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. That means they're in, they belong, and once they arrive, they're safe, they're secure. Think about the, the idea of the city of refuge in the Bible. Are you familiar with that concept? In Numbers chapter 25, the city of refuge was a um, city in the land of Israel. There were multiple cities set up as places where if you were a murderer or a criminal, you could come into these cities and find safety and refuge. If you'd been accused of something that you hadn't done or it was something that uh, just made you ashamed and made people stare and judge you and, you know, eventually try to trip you up and take you out, you could come into this place and you'd be safe. You know, that was what we wanted to name Living Hope Church. Well, I say we kind of loosely because I wanted to name it City of Refuge. We took a vote. I was one vote short. And I almost just said, I'm the pastor. I'm going to call it City of Refuge. And the rest of you, 
should be able to. But I didn't. I said, okay, living hope. That's a great name from First Peter chapter 1. We have a living hope. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. He's our living hope. But when I ask people, what do you think about City of Refuge? People that didn't have not um, a biblical understanding would say things like, well, it sounds like a, a homeless shelter or a bombed out refugee center. Things like this. So like, people that knew the Bible were like, oh, I love the City of Refuge idea. It's just great. So it's like, well, we want to be accessible to all people, not just the insider Christians who read their Bibles a lot. So City of Refuge, what a great theme. Jesus says, I am your refuge. You come to me. I'm never going to cast you out. When they come banging on the city gates and say, let us have that criminal. Let us have that sinner. They're no good. I'm not going to throw you out there to the wolves. I'm going to keep you safe inside. You're mine. The Father gave you to me, and I'm going to keep you, and you'll always be mine. This is the will of the Father, that I shall lose nothing, he says in verse 39, of what is given to me. Not just, I'm not going to lose anyone, I'm not going to lose anything that he's given to me. Because the Father's given me the Christian individual, the, the man or woman or child. He's given me the church. He's given me the whole world. I'm not going to let this place be wasted away. Remember the leftovers of John 6? I'm not going to let you throw any of these leftover pieces of bread or fish away. I'm not going to let any of my people be thrown out, wasted. Everyone will be redeemed and useful and have a purpose and a place. This is God's will, he says in verse 40. This is God's will that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Three times in this short text, Jesus says, if you simply look to me, or come to me, or eat and drink of me, if you simply believe in me, let's skip a lot of the other stuff and just get to the end, I will raise you up on that last day. See how he fast-forwards through the entire Christian life, all the ups and downs, all the battles, all the tears and pain. He says, here's what the guarantee is. It's rock solid. You can take it to the bank. If you believe in me and come to me, I will raise you up on that last day. You will be safe and secure forever. Keep that book in Christian life in mind. Keep that shortened version, that little summary capsule, encapsulated version in mind, in your pocket, in your heart, so that when you start to feel like, when will this life end? It's just too much for me. Know this, if you have come to him, if the Father has given your life to Jesus, he will raise you up on that last day. You will be safe and secure and enjoy the inheritance because you are his inheritance. God has taken the initiative. God has made it work. I know that you can't do this. I know that you don't have the power and the strength, but God does. This is what grace is. God gives you to His Son. And it's the strength of His grip, not yours, that keeps you safe in His hands. I might have told the story recently, but I can't remember, so I'll tell it again. When I went to Michigan for one of the first times with my new wife, we went out to the lake where her parents had been invited to some folks that were rich enough to have a lake home. It wasn't us. But we went out there, and my father-in-law said, I've walked on this lake before. And I said, yeah, you're a pastor, but you're not that awesome. So, right, whatever. Let's move on. He said, no, seriously. When it freezes over, you can walk on it too. And I said, well, I'm from Louisiana. I don't walk on frozen lakes. That doesn't seem very safe. So no thanks. He said, no, really. So we went out when it froze over. And eventually, I got enough courage up to like do this. And then I threw a big rock at it a few times and just like made a small bend. And I thought, okay, I'll go out. So the question is, what made me stand on top of that ice without sinking? Was it my awesome, buoyant faith that just kind of levitated me off the ground? Was it my light, nimble frame that allowed me just to dance gingerly across the ice? No, it was the strength of the ice, right? It was the thickness of that frozen ice in Michigan. 
God says, you're safe, not because you have such great faith. You've come to me, you've believed in me, you've eaten and drinking. Even if you simply nibbled, even if you have a tiny faith as small as a mustard seed, Jesus says, I'll take care of the rest. Because it's the strength of my power, my foundation I've laid that you're standing on, not your own power or desire or faith even. And when the people who listened to Jesus heard this, they grumbled in verse 41, and they said about him, Is this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say to us, I've come down from heaven? We, we know his mother and his father, his blue-collar family. What is he talking about? He came from heaven. We know where he came from. He came from Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. They should have got a clue right there. What does Bethlehem mean? Bethlehem. House of bread. I'm the living bread. God sent me as bread to the world, and you've missed it. You, you don't know that I was virgin born through the Holy Spirit. I am from heaven. I pre-existed all of you. I am who I am. I, before Moses was, Jesus will say later, before Moses was, I am. Well, they grumbled. They complained. How can it be? He just looks like an ordinary man. He just looks like an ordinary rabbi, just another prophet come along. And so here they are grumbling, just like the fathers did in the wilderness. You know the fathers in the wilderness, they said, you brought us out of Egypt, out of slavery, where we had the cucumbers and the melons and the catfish, and man, we were just like fat. Like we just sat next to meat pots, they said all day long, just like dip their hands in, like there's a big piece of meat. That's what they did as slaves in their mind. That's what they thought they were doing as slaves. Just eating all day long, getting fat and happy. And God says, I need to redeem you from the, the taskmaster, Pharaoh, who's whipping your backs and making you build his storehouses and his pyramids and his granaries, and I need to free you from that, so we're going to go out to this wilderness, and I will spread a table in the wilderness for you. But they said, we're hungry. He says, well, watch this. I'll give you bread from heaven, the manna. And then they started saying, well, it's the same old, same old every day. We want something different now. See, they always complain. And now here's Jesus' generation saying the same thing. We saw the miracle yesterday. You, sure, you fed us for a day, 20,000 of us, but we want some better miracles. We want more of the same. And we do the same thing, don't we? I mean, what generation besides Americans has so much? Right? We, we are living in a society that has too much. Um, and some of you might feel that I don't have enough, and there's more than enough to share here at Living Hope Church. We can share our food with you, our time and resources. There's more than enough to share. But we still complain. After we've eaten, we see the leftovers in the fridge, or we, we think, I want more variety, I want something better, more expensive, I want something more organic or whatever. We were never satisfied. I like, I like organic food, by the way. But you see, the point is, we all end up grumbling because we have stubborn hearts that are hard to please. And that's why Jesus said in verse 44, that's why no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one on their own is just going to come to me and say, I've suddenly figured it out. I'm needy, I'm no good, I'm a sinner, and I need someone else to save me and to tell me what to do because I'm not smart enough to do it on my own. No one's going to say that. So that's why God must draw you to himself. And the word there is the same word that you might see in chapter 4 where the Samaritan woman comes to the well to draw water out of the well. That well was 100 feet deep. It's 100 feet deep today. It might have been deeper back then. 100 feet deep, you have to draw that water up with a bucket. God has to draw us from being far from him so we'll come close to him. And, and you might say, well, I don't want that type of God who overpowers my will and pulls me fighting, kicking and screaming in this tug of war, you know, my will versus his. That's not the picture at all. Do you get a picture of an angry God who is forcing himself upon you in this passage? 
He loves you. He's giving himself for the world. He's giving his life unto death for people who grumble and complain and keep looking for other saviors in other places. Augustine, the ancient church father, said this, Do not think that God draws you against your will. The soul is drawn by love. How does that happen? People that don't love God, he changes their hearts. He enables them to love. He does what Jeremiah 31 and Hosea 11 say. He draws us by the cords of loving kindness. He puts a, a rope around you and just slowly, graciously, lovingly, begins to change your heart. Your heart begins to open to him and follow him and come to him and eat of him and drink of him. <clears throat> Drawn by these cords, we become satisfied with God. How does God draw people to himself? Jesus said in John 12, well, this is how it will happen in part. I will be lifted up on the cross. I will be lifted up and I will draw all men to myself. Well, when you think about the cross, isn't this how God draws you to himself? To think that the God who made the world and gave us bread and gave us oxygen and everything we have, he would give himself over to us, stubborn, complaining sinners that we are. He would give himself over for us. And when we see that cross, when we see what Jesus did there, we would sing the song, Here I am to worship. I'll never know how much it costs to see Jesus, what you did on that cross. And that draws me to you in a new way. I'm not resistant. I'm not stubborn anymore. I come willingly because you've loved me so deeply. You've enticed me. You've wooed me. You've stilled my soul. And so God says, everyone who comes to God, everyone that God draws, he will teach them. Verse 45. Verse 45 says, it is written in the prophets, all of them will be taught by God, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father and comes to me. God writes his law on our hearts. The prophets would say that he would take the Holy Spirit and and take the law and he would inscribe it on our hearts. He would engrave it in our conscience, in our souls, so that we could also say what Paul says in Romans 8. We would then learn from the Holy Spirit to cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. Daddy, Father, I need you. I'm a child. I don't have what I need. Help me. Change my heart. Teach me directly. John 14, Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come and remind his disciples of everything he taught them, and he would comfort them with that truth. And he counseled them with those truths. God will personally teach you. I know some of you are looking to professors and books and classes and tutors. This is God himself teaching you mouth to ear, heart to heart, and it costs you nothing. You won't be in debt when you finish with the school of discipleship of Jesus Christ. Unless you go to a really expensive seminary, I guess. But otherwise, it won't cost you a dime. All of them will be taught by me, God says. And so the people heard what he said, and some of them believed, and some of them continued complaining and grumbling, and they would leave him. We'll get to that in a few weeks as we continue this story from John 6. But Jesus takes these people who <clears throat> had the manna, and they keep talking about the forefathers in the desert. The manna perished. The manna spoiled. The people died. The people perished in the desert. But Jesus says, I am eternal. And the bread I give you is eternal. And I will give you eternal life and you will never perish, spoil, or fade. First Peter. Your, your inheritance is secure. It's invincible. It's a gift from me to you. He says, trust me. Come to me. Believe in me. Lean on me. Eat and drink of this. Precious gift, this, this precious treasure. 
Joy Davidman wrote a book. Her book is called Smoke on the Mountain. And in her book, she talks about the Ten Commandments. You know the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me, right? You shall have no other gods before my face. Well, if you take the flip side of that, Joy Davidman says, let's assume the positive of the, the commandment. That means you shall have me. You shall have me, God says to us. You shall have me. I am the bread of life. Come and eat of me. You shall have me. I'm yours. Take me. Luther, Martin Luther, the one that Martin Luther King was named after, Martin Luther, the reformer, said, when he hears this promise from John 6, come to me, believe in me, and you will have eternal life, this is what Luther said. On these words, I will go to sleep at night and wake in the morning. Leaning upon them, I will sleep and wake, work and travel. For though everything were to go to ruin, his words are sure. And he says, hold fast to me, come to me, and you shall live. In these words, we shall be satisfied in neither hunger nor thirst, for he is the bread of life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. And as we do that, I ask the music team and those who are helping serve the communion to come forward at this time.